Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, new Cy Young award-winning pitcher, Trevor Bauer. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. And, you know, I, I said it before, but I, I don't think you'll, uh, you'll get tired of hearing, you know, that you are a Cy Young uh, award-winning pitcher. How, how does it feel? Um, so I'm actually really bad at celebrating events like this so I've been actively trying to celebrate them um I won the golden spikes which is like I guess it's like the Heisman for baseball in college uh and it was it wasn't until like three years later that I ended up that I saw the award in my house and I was like wow I like reflected and thought back like that's pretty cool that's what I went to college to do and I did it so th I'm trying not to make the same mistake this time I'm trying to celebrate it um spray some champagne with my agent, uh, went out to dinner with a bunch of family and friends and like, you know, trying to, trying to enjoy it. But it, uh, it's something I've wanted, you know, ever since 2011, when I won the golden spikes, the next goal was to win a Cy Young. So it's been a, a long time coming and pretty, pretty proud of myself to be honest. Oh, man, That's the best. But then again, to your point, it is more about the process and the journey for it than it is about, the result but to have done it and look back on it is just the most fun ever I imagine yeah I think I mean the process is clearly the the most important on a day-to-day -day basis right but like if you don't ever get a result for your process and it's hard to it's hard to say that your process was was good everyone can have a process right but if you're not going somewhere if you don't accomplish something with the process what good was it <laughs> So the way I the way I do things, I, I look at where I am right now, and I try to be really honest with myself, and I try to get other people to you know be honest with me about where I am, and whatever I'm trying to solve, like where am I right now, and then where do I want to be, and so I have the endpoints, and then you can kind of fill in the middle, and you can figure out like how do I get from point A to point B. So if you're trying to get to point B and you never get to point B, then it's hard to say that the process was important because you just didn't accomplish anything. So the the accomplishment is is important because it validates all the work that you did and, and the process you built and the, the time you spent and stuff like that. And so ha having that validation at the end, uh, achieving the goal at the end makes, you know, makes the process that much more sweet. That's uh, super real stuff right there. So at what age did the process of becoming a professional athlete begin for you? And how did you sort of begin to realize that? Is it, was it a, a natural thing or, or how did that start? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's kind of two portions of it. One, when I was in the crib, my parents put a bunch of toys in the crib, obviously, you know, like stuffed, stuffed animals and whatever you put in a baby's crib, you know. And a couple of the toys that we called it fat bat. There's a bat that was maybe about a foot long. It was red. We actually, it's still on my shelf at, uh, at my parents' house. They still have it, the exact bat. But uh, it has this big barrel. It's a wiffle ball bat for like, for young kids. And uh, there's a stuffed uh, baseball, uh, like a like a like a fabric like baseball looking thing, you know. And uh, those are the two toys that I always played with for whatever reason. They changed out a bunch of different other ones. Like there's footballs and there's stuffed animals, you know, whatever the case is. And I just always picked up the baseball and the bat. So really, from the time I was in a crib, and I don't remember. You know, these are just stories that that my parents kind of tell me. I don't really remember any of that. Um, but I was always interested in baseball. And then I had a really unique situation with my, with my family growing up in the sense that we lived in California, but my dad worked in New Mexico. And so he would leave on Sunday night 
you fly to work and you get back Friday morning at like three in the morning. And so during the week he was gone. So from a very young age, like the deal that he had with me was I'll continue to pay for baseball lessons. I'll pay for you to be on the travel team. I'll pay for you to enroll and play um, whatever. I'll provide equipment and stuff like that. But you have to do the work in between the, you know, the lessons in between the practices in between the games so that you can continue to get better. Cause I'm not just going to pay for the same lesson over and over or the same, you know, uh, travel team, you know, tournaments over and over if you're not getting better. And that seemed fair enough to me, you know, as a, as a young kid, I could understand that. Uh, so from, I don't know exactly what age, but it was, I mean, it must've been six, eight, somewhere in there. Um, you know, I would ride my bike up to the park with my, you know, buckets of baseballs or I'd have my glove in my backpack or whatever. And I would go find a fence and I would throw and I'd be doing my own process. You know, I, I had to internalize my process from a young age. And uh, that's really where the, the journey started because I, you know, I, I had to take ownership of it. And I decided from a young age, obviously, that I wanted to do that. No one was forcing me to ride my bike to go do that. You know, right. I had to force myself. Um, and that's really where it all started for me. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say they put a baseball in your crib and you just started throwing 95 mile an hour <laughs> fastballs at age four. But I mean, yeah. that's the process right there. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about you as an entrepreneur, because that's where I think you uh, have differentiated yourself from most, uh, from all MLP players and most professional athletes for that matter. Where, where did you sort of get a knack and, and find some love in the business side of things and turning yourself into a brand because as you know us as fans of baseball we know that that's not a very common thing mm. baseball players like to be further back as opposed to you know athletes and other sports where where did you kind of get that knack so it started with baseball from the young age like i was talking about i, I my process is i see i evaluate where i am i look at where i want to go and then i develop a process well part of developing that process is you have to see the inefficiencies in what you currently do. You have to see the things that are lacking, I guess. Um, and so I got really good from a, from a young age. I, I built this ability to look and see inefficiencies in systems. So I see inefficiencies in my training. I see inefficiencies in my performance. I see inefficiencies. Then it started being, I see inefficiencies in players that I'm around and things that they could do better. Then I see inefficiencies in team structures and I see inefficiencies in industries. Uh, and so as I learned more about these things, as I went through school, as I, and really when I got out of school, uh, when I got out of college, um, I started seeing inefficiencies in a bunch of different things. Um, I saw an inefficiency in myself in like 2014, where all I did was baseball and I would drive myself nuts. Uh, and I mentally, it was like kind of spiraling downwards. So I was like, okay, I need, I need a hobby to go do that. And so I got really into drones and that's all I did off the field is, is drones. Well, at some point I figured out enough about drones at the current time that I was like, okay, I see the end here. I know everything I need to know. If I want to be really good at drones, then all I have to do is practice like infinite hours. And I just wasn't willing to practice the infinite hours because I'd figured out the intellectual puzzle. And so I'd, I'd seen inefficiencies in the baseball industry for a while because I'm in it, you know, um, the industry as a whole, you know, how players are represented, how players are uh, marketed and stuff like that. And so I always, you know, I kind of knew that I wanted to get into business. Um, one of my goals is, is to become a billionaire and I know I'm not going to do that just by playing baseball. And I've always, you know, I've always had a mind for it. So 
Uh, and then, so I knew I wanted to get into business for a couple, two, three years, probably back in 2015 or 2016, but I, I didn't know what, I am like, what am I going to sell? What, you know, I, I don't know enough about it. I, I don't know what, what business I'm going to run. Well, in 2018 at the all-star game, Rob Manfred made a comment about uh, Mike Trout and basically saying that, you know, MLB would like to market its stars more, but it's on the player to be marketable. It's on the player to engage. Um, and it didn't sit too well with me, you know, emotionally at the time, because like, oh, here's the commissioner of our game attacking the players for not doing enough. It's like, we are the product on the field. We, we have a full-time job to go out and play right. for six months. Plus if you make playoffs at seven plus spring training, six weeks. So you're looking at eight and a half months out of the year where it's literally every single day, even off days during the year, you're traveling, you're, you know, very rare. You get an off day at home. Um, and so it didn't sit well with me. I was like, okay, I see there's a, there's a problem here. Like baseball's losing popularity among the younger generations. And uh, Rob Manfred doesn't think the players are engaging enough, but no one's teaching the players how to engage. No <laughs> one's, no one's then taking the players and engaging with the fans in a way that draws them in and, and makes that connection. I was like, okay, I can do that. And my best friend, Taiki, uh, I had met him at a training facility called driveline that I go to. And he had actually, he started as a trainee, then he was a trainer, and then he kind of handled all their video and marketing side of things for a while just because he was passionate about video. He had recently just like six months before that left uh, to go freelance because he wanted to get more into storytelling and, and develop his filmmaking career. And so we both share a passion for baseball and decided to start Momentum and uh, spent six to eight months like figuring out, trying to figure out what we were going to do and set the structure and whatever and then launched in early you know i think january 2019 um and that was really the first kind of foray and i loved it uh, i loved like the puzzle of it trying to figure out you know where do we go next what's the next move how do we organize our people how do we stuff like that and then so i just looked at the other inefficiencies that go along with that and i said oh okay well if you have content that's great but then how do you how do you make the content the right content well that's brand building right so i'm going to start like a, a branding educational like management company and so that's in the works and then it's well what do you do with with the once you're branded like how do you monetize that and as that that was the next step and then i was like okay well now you have this brand that like should be valuable to teams how do you how do you utilize that to like make your yourself more valuable in contract negotiations how do you how do players get more value out of the contract negotiations and at about that time my agent now rachel luba had like launched her own agency and had this pitch of like look we're going to use social media we're going to you know charge less we're going to you know, um it's going to be more customizable and all this stuff and it's like wow that makes sense yeah. it fits perfectly with what i'm doing and then so that was the next thing and then it's just it, then it just you know the, the snowball gets rolling and i'm like oh well, we could do this and we could yeah. do that now i'm like now i'm just so in it i'm just like I see all the different connections and it's like a big chessboard no. or like four chessboards where you're playing, you know, crossboard and, and the whole deal. So no, I, I love, I love hearing your passion for it. And we'll, we'll dive into all of that, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. Cause I come from more of the basketball NBA side of things and the way that the NBA approaches their content and copyright policies is if it doesn't directly conflict with live TV viewership, it benefits the league because more people will end up, you know, becoming fans, buying merchandise, you know, subscribing to the NBA's uh, version of, of, you know, watching online on MLB, which is League Pass and things like that. Whereas other leagues feel as though if somebody is paying for it, why should we let you use it? Mm. 
And that is what, in my opinion, crushes leagues on the social side, which then, you know, doesn't allow younger fans to get in because there are no micro communities of pages and people posting mm -hmm. highlights and getting new people in. Have you found and, and seen similar things? It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Um, the two gold standards, in my opinion, are the NBA and um, MMA. I think mm -hmm. MMA nails the storytelling so well. Yeah. You know, to promote a fight, you have to have a story for the fight. Why are these guys fighting? You know, why do they dislike each other? What, or do they respect each other? And it's a battle of the best of all time. Or like, what did this guy go through to like make him want to be a fighter? So they have these storylines that they develop these personalities in the sport and they like really encourage those things to shine. And of course it's an individual sport and a lot more of that can happen. You know, an individual can take over the, his marketing and like really build his, his story through, through the media. But the, the organization encourages that they promote that they facilitate that same thing in the NBA. Like you're talking about, they, you know, I use this example all the time. Um, Steph Curry, through a bounce pass uh, in the NBA All-Star game, uh, either last year or the year before, eight minutes afterwards, and it was trending on Twitter. I mean, it was a bounce pass that like led to a dunk, but like Curry was trending for throwing the bounce pass because he did it creatively. And like eight minutes later, it's got millions of views all over Instagram, right? Yeah. And, and it's like, now what, I'm, I'm scrolling through this thing. Like now, what was so special about it? I mean, it was cool, but like, there's been way cooler plays, you know, even in the same game. Um, but Curry had built himself into obviously a super recognizable like figure and super popular figure. And then he did something cool and it's everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, like these highlights are everywhere. You know, uh, Mike Trout uh, jumps in the air and robs a home run. I'm like, it's hard to find that, you know, you don't, you don't see it. Tim Anderson flips a bat and like, it's hard to find places. And it's gotten better the last couple of years, but the, the policy is so restrictive that players, technically, if you read the policy, players are not allowed to share pictures or videos of themselves if they're in a team uniform uh, with a team logo without getting permission first. Which is insane. That's, yeah, it's technically like, now, they, do they enforce it? No, but it's technically in the policy. And so like, theoretically I would go and have a like let's say I did something viral during a start like I had my Cincinnati Buds like beer chug viral moment right <laughs> it got shared everywhere if I wanted to post it to amplify that I would technically have to reach out to the team who would have to reach out to the league to get permission for me to then share a picture of it a video of it um, I just go ahead and share those things anyway but uh, it's technically in the policy. So like you said, it, it kills those micro communities um, and it kills opportunities for businesses to be able to get going to create more interesting content that would promote the player that would then promote the league. Like if, if we're going to have a video, like, you know, Patreon's a thing and like if people were going to pay us for like exclusive content uh, we would have to pay a license for any any logo that any MLB logo that appeared in that video, if people were paying uh, us for, you know, seeing that content, um, we have to pay for that. And the, the fee is like $10,000 per minute of footage, whether you use one second or 59 seconds of it. Um, and it's just, it, it's so expensive that even if you're not like, these aren't stories that the league is telling, no, no one's doing this. No one's, 
you know, off the field with a guy wearing a Cincinnati hat because he's super proud to be a red. Like that's not a story that the league's telling the league isn't selling that, but you still have to pay uh, for that. Uh, whereas like, obviously if you're rebroadcasting a game, I get it. But the NBA, like you're saying, it's like, tell the stories, grow the league, you know? Yeah. So no, that's, that's it. And I think it's really interesting too, because you look at, you know, you mentioned Steph, he just launched the Curry brand under Under Armour. There's no reason that a Mike Trout or a Trevor shouldn't have the same thing as Jordan, you know, LeBron's going to eventually have it with Nike. There were stories about how he wanted to launch Team LeBron. That'll happen. Curry has his own brand. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it makes sense with the large shoe companies because basketball shoes can be worn by everybody, right? Because they're flat bottom shoes. So in baseball, the shoe companies shy away from doing that because not many people wear cleats. And the design on a cleat traditionally has not been looked like a shoe. Right. Um, so there's two, there's two options here. You get creative and you build a brand around something else that's baseball culture. But if, you, if you're going to do that, you have to be able to promote baseball culture. And you have to be yeah. able to promote the players. And there's, the league's policies are restrictive enough that like, it's stifled that for the past however many years. So we're, we're very far behind. Um, it stifles it from the top down, but also the culture in the clubhouse. If you're, if you're trying to promote yourself as a brand, you're looked at as selfish. You're not a team player. You're not focusing. Uh, the other way to do it is just to make, make cleats look like shoes and then sell the shoe version of the cleat. But the league's cleat policy has been restrictive enough that like for the longest time, and it's changed over the past two to three years, but the longest time you could only have two colors on your cleats. They had to be 50% black and you couldn't have custom designs. You couldn't have custom wording. You couldn't have, you know, anything like that. And I think now as the league has opened that up and allowed for some of these custom shoes, like, I mean, I wore a bunch of them last year. They were super popular. People loved them. Like they created a ton of buzz on social media. Um, you're going to start seeing some of these opportunities where it's like, oh, okay, I had a really popular pair of cleats that I wore this year. I'm going to make those into shoes. People are, you know, going to buy a couple of them and it'll help start like, the, the line moving but yeah it's just baseball's fallen so far behind in, in those creative marketing ways that really draw in the young fans and, and attach with the young people and the culture nba is great with music they have popular music playing during the game um so now you get people and, and they've identified with like the popular music there it's, it's kind of a rap uh pop hip-hop culture woven in seamlessly with the game so now you have two markets, you have basketball fans and you have pop fans or, or rap fans, you know, music fans. And that's everybody. It just it no. widens your market. And th- those are young people, you know, those are your future fan base for the next 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So, so it's so true. But in terms of the product uh, and like having a Trevor Nike or whatever it is, the way I see it is they should have a whole product line of everything in baseball culture, your hats, your gloves, your batting gloves, your cleats, your street shoes, doing, doing what you were talking about there. There's so, so many more products that you need in baseball, which would, you know, obviously sneakers are sneakers. Everybody wears sneakers. Not everybody wears batting gloves. But, you know, since there are so many different things and there are so many fans, maybe it would make sense. But No doubt. Know. And the thing, the thing about those, uh, those items that you mentioned, is a lot of them are they're, they're pretty perishable. You know, so you create one fan that needs batting gloves. He goes and plays for a season. He probably goes through his batting gloves in a, in a season and needs them again next season. There's like 15, the average, you know, changes year to year, but there's on average, there's like 15 million youth baseball players uh, every single year. Um, and then they need, they need a new bat. 
every, you know, they, they grow, they need a new weight every six months to a year. They need new batting gloves. They wear out a glove. They need new shoes there because kids are growing, you know? So it's not like a one-time thing where you have a one-time purchase and only 15 million player audience. Like you have constantly renewing people and they're constantly growing and needing new stuff. There's so many different items. Basketball, you got shoes, you got a headband and you got a, uh, a ball. Right. You should be a headband. <laughs> right. But I, I agree with that. There's so many products and there's, there's such a wide market for it. it. It's, it's been relatively untapped. It's really interesting. So what are, what are you most excited about now on the business front? I just want to say a few things that I really like that you did. I saw your t-shirt, uh, that said, uh, rent <laughs> available space for rent. Yeah. Space for rent. That's probably the funny. Did you make that by the way? I didn't. So, um, my marketing agent, uh, Morgan is really like really, really sharp on a lot of these, a lot of these things. And so she actually, um, had that idea and she brought it to me and she's like, Hey, I, I'd like to, well, she actually just made the shirts and she shipped them to me and she's like, Hey, I sent you a surprise. Let me know when you get it. So I opened this up. I'm like, Hey, can you explain these to me? She goes, yes. So for all your YouTube videos, you know, you want people and advertisers to understand that like you're willing to wear clothes and their logo for, you know, for that. Like uh, she had the idea when I like unbuttoned my shirt and had my send it shirt on in Kansas city, I has a shirt that I sell on my website and a moment that happened in Kansas city and I unbutton my shirt and I'm wearing the shirt and it gets shared everywhere. Cause like no one's seen a picture do that before. And then, you know, sales on the site go up, uh, obviously and people want the shirt. So like, she's very good with these ideas and like, okay, well, where are people's eyes most? And like, how can we get something that we're doing in front of their eyes more often? I make YouTube content. So it's like, well, you should wear a shirt that says space for rent. And so I wore that, you know, I think I've, I got them in maybe August or September and I've been wearing them a couple of times and already have generated like two or three new leads on people that are like, oh, wait, I could advertise on his shirt right there. That's great. He gets an X amount of views. Let, let me pay him for that. So um, as far as, you know, building that brand and, and creating those connections, it's, it's great. She, she does a great job with that stuff. I love that. And shout out to Morgan, by the way, she set this up scheduled and, and everything. So uh, she's a rock star. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to ask, what are you most excited about now on the business front? Are you mm. focused on like DTC products, your own brand, uh, investing in new companies? How do all those things weigh out in your head and how do you kind of try to intertwine them all? Yeah. So I, I'm excited about all of those. Um, they're all puzzle pieces. You know, I see this as like a, the big picture and you have to place one piece and figure out there's a whole bunch of other ones. Like, okay, which one goes next and which one connects with this? So that's kind of the analogy that I use for it. What I'm most excited about right now is, is understanding <clears throat> motivation in people. How do you motivate, how do you motivate an individual? How do you motivate a group? How do you get the right people to fit the culture to continue to motivate the group? Um, and so a lot of my research, I'm a huge researcher. I learn. that's like my main passion is just learning new things. I love that. Um, so my main research right now is in team building, um, and, and strategy and how to, you know, how to motivate people and, and how to keep the culture and, and stuff like that. But it applies to baseball and business. So I feel like it's a great lane to be in because I'm, you know, I'm going to be a leader in the clubhouse, hopefully, and I'm going to be a leader in my businesses. So that's my main passion right now. As far as how's everything integrate, how everything integrates, um, the way I see it, like my strong suits are uh, being the public face 
um, being out there and, and talking about what the future will look like and what I see and, you know, a better landscape for players and a better landscape for fans and how we connect them and stuff like that. So that a lot of that is building my brand. So I have a wider reach, a, a wider audience, a bigger platform. Uh, so I'm excited about that, um, you know, creating content and uh, the vlog and, and stuff like that. So that's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Um, I have a couple other things coming out, probably getting announced around spring training entities that I'm building that will help kind of double down on some of the, uh, the media push that we've had. Uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, you have the media first, then you have to be able to utilize that in a branding way and then, you know, draws people into the ecosystem. So um, excited about some of the opportunities that we have for fans centered around that and also some of the impacts that we'll be able to make on the player side with individuals and, and help kind of educate them uh, so that they can reap some of the benefits of, you know, expanding their platform and maximizing their time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see the, the overall structure. I'm out front. I'm the point person on building the brand and bringing recognition to the companies. And then you get the team of people at the companies to be able to deliver over deliver on the product side uh, to the, to the player, to the fan, to the, whoever, um, and then the, the, the strategy of coming up with the new products is like, is fun. Like, well, what, what, what creative thing can we do here? And, you know, what do people look for and how do we structure that? And, you know, that stuff's interesting to me too. Totally. So to follow up on what you said about researching how to be a leader and, and putting, you know, time and, and energy into trying to do that the best you can, uh, what have you found in terms of motivating people to do you know, the things that either you want them to do or you want them to want them to do. Yeah. So it starts like, again, the way I make sense of this all in my head, and there's certainly many ways to do it is uh, where are we right now and where do we want to go? And then you have to fill in how, right? So I have actually a form that every one of my employees, I ask every one of my employees to fill out. It's a personal goal sheet because at the end of the day, people are motivated by what they're motivated by. It's very hard to change someone's motivators. Uh, some people are motivated by money, some people by success, some people by friendship and relationships. Some you know, it's, it's different for everybody. So I ask them to fill it out. It's like, you know, where are you now? Give an accurate evaluation of like where you feel like your life is. Are you happy? Are you not? How are your relationships? Are they good? Are they not? Are you content? Whatever the case is, where are we now? Then it's like in five years, where would you like to be personally, professionally, financially in 10 years, same thing. So now you have a little bit of like some checkpoints along the way, right? And then I can look at that and say, okay, as a, as, a, as a business owner, as an employer, like how do I structure the job titles? How do I structure the job responsibilities? How do I structure the conversations that we're going to have, the, the monthly meetings? How do I structure these things to align with this person's goals? Uh, so it helps put the person in the right track in the company as long, so long as obviously their skill set fits with that. But it, allow, it gives me a much clearer picture of like, okay, well, there's two people that could do this job and this person really wants to. And this person is like kind of in on it, but wants to go this direction. Okay, great. Now I can separate people in those areas. And then they're going to be motivated by it because they look at it and they say, oh, okay, I'm going in the direction I want to go first off. And then this is in line with my goals. So I feel like I'm moving forward. I feel empowered. I feel like I have ownership of my personal life, my career, as well as like this new lane that I'm going in. Um, and then when you talk to them about things, you have to structure it and like, how do you give them what they want first? Because when you, when you think about people, if I come to you and I say, Hey, I got this great idea. You're going to do all these things to help me. What do you say? It's like, you're like, why would I do that? What's in it for me? Yeah, it's everyone's right. response. 
if I go to you and I say, hey, I have this great idea. I have like this way, this way, this way, and that way to help you. I think it'd be great. What do you say? You're like, well, what's the catch? Yeah, I'm in on that, but what's the catch, right? Um, and it's two different responses. So if I go with the second way, you're a lot more motivated to do the things that I'm laying out. And in the background, I may have some like long-term goal for that. Like if it's a relationship building thing with a partner in business, like, hey, how can I help your business? Okay, I provide value to you. I go to you again and say, you know, how'd that work? How can we do better next time? You know, let's, let's provide more value to you. And six months down the road, a year down the road, they may come back and say, you've done a lot for me. Like, how can I help your business? Oh, you know, really not a whole lot. Like just connections. Like we just don't know a whole lot of people. We're trying to make connections. Oh, I have 40 people that I know in this specific industry. Like you want me to make some introductions for you? That's easy. I'll put you on a text thread. Yes. Great. Now that develops into business opportunities down the road, employee opportunities down the road, stuff like that. So it all starts with motiva- motivating people as far as I understand and as far as my experience tells me, it all starts with how do you give them what they want first, get them on your side, that creates the partnership and my goals in it are more long-term and looking at the future and the development of it as opposed to right now like, hey man, you want to, can I come on your podcast, Joe Rogan, so I can get followers? It's like, well, do I have something that's intriguing that adds to Joe's audience, you know, like right. two different ways of approaching it. No, that that's... That's definitely a hundred percent true. And also when you can, you know, giving people on your team and things of that nature, appreciable assets, um, no doubt. You know, that they're able to, able to, you know, actually be compensated based on, you know, their performance and, you know, put, put forwards in, in that regard. That, that's something that I've been thinking about, you know, a lot recently, um, you know, I heard, uh, I heard Mark Cuban, you know, being asked, how to uh, how to you know bring the gap closer together between the top you know five ten percent and you know the bottom ninety and the answer is for employers to give their employees as as many appreciable assets and I feel like that only incentivizes right. those people you know underneath to work harder so uh, I'm definitely with you in terms of value and it's something that I think about a lot too um, you know when anybody when anybody reaches out, reaches out to you right the ones that you'll respond to are the ones where, you know, it's not about the person. It's about you. And it it should always be about you. And anything that isn't about you is ridiculous. But, you know, if you're reaching out to somebody else, it's never about you. It's about Mm -hmm. them. It's, hey, what can I do? What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I better your business, provide value to you, work for you for free, do these things that other people mm. can't do. And then, you know, that's, that's a very easy in the door. No um, doubt. And, but, you know, I think where people oftentimes, you know, I either don't know and everybody makes this mistake of being, I definitely made this mistake, you know, when reaching out to certain people, you know, when I was younger, I would, you know, there would, there would be, there should never be a me, you know, in the text line or, in the in the thing unless there's a ton of value following it it should all be you know you instead of i um, you you lead with you right and then you use the i as like supporting evidence as to why they should work with you you know it's like hey i'd love to have you on the podcast uh i think you're extremely interesting uh i'd love to talk about these things my podcast gets a million downloads per episode right. uh i have i'm in this niche i think it could benefit 
your brand and your visibility, would that be something you're interested in? So you kind of sandwich as, as evidence as to right. why they should join you, but you start and you finish with the benefit to them. A hundred percent. That's, that's the uh, Krabby Patty secret formula right there. <laughs> yeah. Krabby yeah. Patties. What I an like iconic, that. what an iconic patty. Iconic. Um, I want to, do you have any like daily practices? I know you, you love doing research. Obviously, <laughs> obviously you're training, uh, yeah. you know, very frequently you're doing vlogs, you're doing media, you're doing business. Do you have any, do you meditate every day? Do you write in a journal? Is there anything like that? Cold shower? What do you do on a daily, daily basis that you got to do? Yeah. So every morning I have like an hour and a half routine. Um, Sometimes it's just too much and I like, I'm going to take a day off and just be a normal human and not do all this crazy stuff. But uh, I measure my blood every morning. I measure my heart rate variability. I measure my, um, my central nervous system readiness with a, there's like a tap test on your phone where you tap your screen as many times as you can in 10 seconds. I have this huge spreadsheet of data that going back like three, four years of like 50 daily metrics. I'm tracking, I hold my breath as long as I can every morning uh, and measure that. That's another indication of, um, you know, central nervous system readiness. I, uh, I measure my hydration. I measure, uh, I track all my meals I track. So this is, this is all stuff like, uh, that I do for, for the training side of things, but it's also, you know, revealed a lot of things about myself that can help me in other areas of my life. Like I realized when I started tracking my sleep two or three years ago, every day, I'd look at my REM sleep, my uh, deep sleep, my HRV, stuff like that. And I noticed that I was, I was losing like two hours of sleep every night because I was tossing and turning. And so I've been chasing this like restlessness, uh, trying to figure out how to be less restless. Well, that helps cognitive ability. You know, the more sleep you get, the more sharp you are during the day, the easier decisions are to make. So that helps business, it helps training, it helps relationships, it helps everything. Uh, so these are all things that I do. And then I have uh, four days a week, I'm doing cardio uh, on a specific like breathing regimen before I do anything in the day. So it like gets me, it gets me uh, primed and, and going. Um, I have an inversion table that I hang on and do some breathing exercises to like uh, promote blood flow um, and and help my physical readiness. Um, all, all, all sorts of different stuff. I don't have any like, I always wake up at 4.30 a.m. and take a cold shower type of things because my life is so different it's i'm in this city i'm in that city sometimes i have to change because i you know we have a day game and i can't get through all that different stuff because i need sleep and that's most important so i try not to have any um i don't want to say that they're crutches but for lack of a better term like crutch that i have to do this every single day because i can't throughout the year i like to be adaptable but um yeah i have a ton of stuff that i do on a daily basis you know that that helps me track where my body's at where my mind's at um, and optimize to, to try to keep those two things in the best place possible. That's super interesting. Have you ever tried meditating or, or spent any time doing that? I've spent a good amount of time meditating uh, in the early 20 teens. Um, I used to have, so my mind runs nonstop, right? Like, like I'm just, yeah, I'm thinking, and like there's, yeah. yeah. So I couldn't fall asleep. I would, I would lay in bed for, and my mind would be going everywhere. I'd have this idea and that, and I was thinking about, I was reading, and then I'd get up and I'd look at my phone cause I'd want to know this. And I'd have this thirst for information instead of just, you know, writing it down or creating a voice note. I'd spend an hour researching it right then. And then I'm thinking about all the information or like, I'll listen to a podcast or an audio book as I'm going to sleep. But then it sparks my mind, like going in a bunch of different directions and how do I, you know, connect all these things. So I had to, I taught myself how to fall asleep. I taught myself to like, 
to how to shut my brain off. And a lot of that was through meditation. So I created this routine that, you know, I don't have to use it anymore because uh, I've trained my body, but the routine was basically, I would breathe in for five seconds, hold for five seconds, breathe out for five seconds, hold for five seconds. Every, while I was doing it, I had to draw the number, like the count. So I'd draw one in my head, a two in my head, a three in my head as I was counting my breath holds. Um, and so that would, you know, because I had to focus on like seeing the number draw itself, it would help bring my mind into like one thing as opposed to all of this other stuff. Once I did five cycles like that, I would imagine myself sitting in a theater with uh, everything that's going on in my brain on the stage. It's a play that's going on, dim lights, you know, like there's a crowd of people there. I'm watching everything that's unfolding in my head play out on this stage. And eventually the curtains would start to close and they'd close slowly and I'd give, I'd give all the thoughts in my head time to play out and to have their time and I'd watch it and I'd, you know, just think about it. And as soon as the curtain closed, I thought of a black hole sucking everything into just blackness. Um, very rarely, yeah, very rarely did I get to the black hole uh, side of things. Because when I accepted that I was gonna give these thoughts their time to play out and just like be okay with it, my body relaxed and I fell asleep. Um, but that was my routine. And I, I did that probably for six months or a year, every single night to shut my brain off. Um, I've done visualization uh, of, you know, pitches and performance and stuff like that. I did a lot of that back in 2013, 2014. Um, I was going through some mechanical changes at the time and uh, did, read some research on how visualization uh, and meditation can actually increase uh, learning, uh, learning rates and, and, um, uh, I'm forgetting the term, but um, the pathways and there's there's a there's a, a medical term for um, how the body creates like uh, skill uh, solidifies skill and, and stuff like that. I forget what the what the term for it is, um, but how meditation can actually increase that and and help that, so you don't have to do the physical reps. Uh, so I, I've I've been like I went hardcore for like two to three years on it, and then I felt like I had learned and the things that I needed to and the lessons from it. And um, I'm very good at relaxing myself. Like I can, at any, at any point in the day, I can just like fully relax my body and like relax my mind. Cause I've taught myself how to do that. Uh, so I don't need to do it as much anymore. So it's not currently a part of my daily routine, but um, some of the principles are, are ingrained in me now. Yeah. I think calmness is such an underrated superpower, you know, huge because you don't like if, if, especially in meditating, if you get all those thoughts out of the way, like whatever thoughts about anything negative ever, that's gone after you meditate. So you're just mm -hmm. left, you're left with yourself. And if you do, if you're lucky enough to be able to do what you love or even chase what you love and your passion, shoot, the rest is all yeah. just there to have fun. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. That, that's super cool though, that you measure everything in the morning. I've I'm never, such a nerd. <laughs> man i don't do any of that i pay attention to like uh my heart rate while i'm working out and things like that and i have my apple watch that i, I have to get a thousand calories burned every day like yep. i don't take a day off from doing that and that takes a bit of time it takes like two to three hours every day yep. but um i've never measured my sleep or anything like that would you recommend that to the normal person so a lot of the research that 
uh, and again, one of the entities that I'm going to launch publicly coming up that we, we haven't talked about, but one of the things we're looking at is sleep in high performers and how it can affect the cognitive skill, uh, the cognitive skills. Um, velocity in, in pitchers is a good example. It's pretty much a physical skill. You can be really tired. You can be like worn down or whatever, and your body can still produce very similar velocities. But the command of that, throwing it where you want it, is highly dependent on sleep. If you get poor sleep for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, like your ability to command the ball and to be sharp and uh, throw the ball you know, where you want to, that's more of a fine-tuned motor skill, and that's heavily influenced by sleep. Same thing with cognitive uh, ability in other areas. Um, if I get poor sleep and I'm trying to write uh, a, a system, a process doc for one of my companies, like I, I, it takes me a long time to get through it. I'm, I'm foggy. I miss things. It's not clear. I read it the next day after getting good sleep and I'm like, wow, I have to redo a lot of this. So wasted time, right? So from an efficiency standpoint, uh, I do think everyone should measure and know something about it. The problem is you're asking people not to be research assistants because there's not one or, or research researchers because there's not one space where they can go and just be educated about all of this stuff right. uh, for their specific application. And that's something that we would like to be able to do is take the, take the data that we get on high performers and the elite of the elite, the professional athletes in, in that space and show the cognitive differences and then education for the athletes, for the youth, for people in business, for people in you know, whatever the case is like, Hey, here's, here's how you do it. Here's what you look at. Here's all the insights that like help you. Um, and here's the proof that we've seen in, in high performers. So that's kind of one of the, one of the lanes that that entity will go down. Um, but I do think that, that people should know more about their bodies because it, it just, if your body functions well and your mind functions well and you treat it right, you're going to be a lot more productive and a lot happier doing the things that you're doing on a daily basis. And I, w I want to jump back to brand in a second, but how heavily do you think diet impacts um, physical performance and mental clarity? Uh, quite a bit. I actually just, so I took it off last night. I probably still have a, a ring you can see <laughs> on my arm there. Um, so I was wearing a, a levels um, continuous glucose monitor device and I've been having this problem where when I work out really hard, when I try really hard, my body just shuts down. I like, I tank really It's like a cliff. I can try really hard, try really hard, bam, I'm done. And I like start trembling and I start like, you know, it's, I can't move. I, I can move, but I'm like very weak and lightheaded for like 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and it's just this cliff that I fall off. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So I started wearing a, like a continuous glucose monitor. And what I was able to see is like when I eat certain meals that I think are healthy, like for instance, I would have a, a chicken breast with uh, white rice and broccoli for dinner. And I'm like, that's a healthy meal, right? Well, what I was noticing is that like my glucose afterwards spike really high. I'm like, now what the heck is going on? How, how is it like I didn't eat any sugar? Well, it was like the carbs in, in the white rice, my body reacted to those in a certain way. So if I added in some fats, like I added in some avocado to the, um, some fats and fibers to that meal. Now I didn't spike as much when I don't have as many spikes, I don't tank during my workouts. And also, you know, glucose spikes are linked to like risk of diabetes in the future and you know, stuff like that. So that makes my body understanding that information and in my diet and what my body's response to best 
helps my mental clarity and how, cause I don't feel that sluggishness and the kind of like drowsiness after I eat a meal because I'm not getting these wild like fluctuations. Uh, so yeah, diet has a huge, has a huge, huge impact, but we can't really measure. I mean, in real time yet, yeah, we we're very uh, early on in the game of being able to measure how that stuff is affecting e- e- you know, each individual. Um, Cause it's not the same. It's it, our, our bodies are so different. Man, I think it's all going to change super soon, like you're saying. And I, I, all I can say is I would not want to be a fast food company right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad. I, I ran some tests where I went and got a fast food and it's like, it, the, it's ridiculous. It's not, it is not good. <laughs> I can feel it. I don't need any yeah. tests. I can, I feel it, bro. I'm, I'm out like a light. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. An honor. Um, <laughs> I want to touch back on branding, but I also wanted to touch, you're a free agent. Um, yes. Are you serious? I saw you post on Instagram. You said uh, or something along the lines of comment why I should go to your team. Are you actually taking comments into consideration for your free agency decision? Absolutely. One of the biggest things for me is uh, connecting with fan bases. So if the, <laughs> if the fan base is excited, that's a, that's a big thing. I. I want to be happy. You know, I, I want to enjoy playing baseball. And one of the things I enjoy most is connecting with fans and um, the interaction there, you know, the, the comments I get on the vlog, the, the requests I get at social media, on social media, seeing fans out of the stadium. That was one of the worst things about coronavirus is there was no fans to interact with the stadium, no autographs to sign, no people to talk to, you know? Um, so yeah, I like, and fans know their team. They know their, their city. They know like some of the cool stuff about it that, like you don't hear in a like a pitch from a front office you know there it's like hey here's our coaches here's our information here's you know the contract size and the money and whatever but, like you don't know the pulse of the fan base you don't know the you know what makes a yankee fan a yankee fan and what makes them different than a mets fan you know like they these fan bases have identities and the players need to fit that identity of the fan base otherwise there'll be a disconnect there you know mm. if a fan base is super blue collar and hard working and you bring in someone that's flaunting you know, money and, and riches and whatever the case is, there's going to be a disconnect there. You know, I, I like, I want to connect with the fans. So I, I want to understand these things about the fan base in the city before I, you know, make a decision. It's not the only decision, but it's one of them. So all of that, what fan base do you think you align with? <laughs> <laughs> I see where you're going with that. I like that. That's a creative way to get to it. Um, there's a lot of them, you know, one, the biggest thing is like, baseball fans you know so like st louis has tremendous baseball fans cincinnati has tremendous baseball fans there's other cities that are like aren't baseball cities you know um but like boston fan base is so passionate about their sports you look at like every time you play in fenway like it's packed and the 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 traditions surrounding just baseball there i mean the cubs before they were you know before this kind of current group of players like back in 2014 or whatever like they weren't that good but there's 40,000 people there at noon on a Wednesday, you know, uh, and, and uh, the Cubs fan base is different than the White Sox fan base. You know, the White Sox fans, like that sta- stadium, they'll be, they'll be good. And the stadium will be relatively empty. They'll draw 5,000 people, you know? So it's like, what, what do you have to do as a player to identify with that fan base? If they're not going to be out of the stadium versus the Cubs, like they're all out of the stadium. Um, so yeah, that's, that, th- those are some of the things that I, that I look for. I think the Mets fans are, are, making a huge push on social media. They're excited right now and excited for baseball. That's one of the biggest things that I look for. So um, Angels fans have been the same way. They're like 
all in my mentions with photoshops and stuff like that i've noticed them quite a bit too so those those are the two so far that kind of stand out to me that's awesome so you said you want to be a billionaire does that tie in with wanting to own a team one day uh at some point i think i probably will but i don't know if i'll own a team in baseball or if i'll own a team in another sport Uh, i think yeah so (laughs) i think that like i have a lot of ideas uh on how to change the structure of an organization to be more uh in line with where i see the, the future of sports going um, and I don't know if I'd be able to do that in baseball because it's right, so, let me, let me it's give so a, ingrained. Let me give you a scenario. I'm a huge New York Knicks fan. You, you yeah. just bought the New York Knicks. What are you doing to change the organization? I'm investing in the, the health and development of my players, first and foremost. And I, I don't want to say that they don't. I don't know what, what the Knicks do. I don't know anything about the internal uh, you know, operation. Um, yeah, but I'm investing in, in the development and the health and development of my players, high performance, stuff like that. But from a biomechanics standpoint, from like a – uh, physiology standpoint stuff like that because I want my best players to be my best players every single night stay healthy be on the court right then I'm investing in um, the fans and connecting the fans bringing the fans back into the fold giving them ownership of the team in some way whether it's from you know making decisions on playlists that are played during the game uh, whether it's uh, you know having them in a certain uh, come, uh, meetings of, of the team live stream to the fans where they can have input on, on certain things, you know, Jersey decisions, like stuff, giving them some piece of ownership where they feel like they're like, I'm part of this organization. Cause I want that right now. I, I want the fan base. Um, I know the baseball industry a lot better. So like in the baseball industry, there's like six levels of minor leagues right now. It doesn't, we don't need that many per se. Um, there's certain reasons why we do and like to help spread the game in, in smaller communities and stuff like that. Uh, but from a strictly player development standpoint, like there should be a research and development group, you know, where like you have players there to test new cutting edge things that you're not ready to roll out to your, to your big league guys yet. But like you can do a ton of development and find new things that work. That's not done right now. Um, I would take, I would have players be full-time employees. Uh, so it's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to train at our facility in the off season. Um, but we're going to, and this, this works in the minor leagues, not as much in the big league level, but we're going to pay you as a full-time employee. We're going to pay you a wage where you can live, but your job is to get better at baseball. And this is how you're going to do it. And you're going to be in our, in our system, in our facility and stuff like that. Um, th- th- there's so many things that I, you know, I'd have to look at the structure of the organization, right? But like it's, it's player health and safety and um, consistency. It's uh, drawing the fan base in and it's optimizing the organization at structure itself so you get the best people getting the best results you sound like you'd be a great owner so I'm looking, <laughs> forward, I'm looking forward to the day um do you think there has ever been a better time in in history uh to be famous and i, I preface that i mean i preface that meaning particularly in business because you see all the biggest exits right now you know or the biggest brands that are being built especially in like the liquor space for example with george clooney mm-hmm. you know exiting his company for 400 million Dwayne the rock Johnson sold 400,000 cases of his, you know, liquor company, LeBron launching his, but uh, you know, you see a lot of these big brands are being built quickly now, you know, quickly meaning one to five to maybe 10 years being built on the backs of celebrity. So do you think there has ever been a better time to be famous? Um, Probably not. I think it's easier to be famous now than it ever has been mm-hmm. uh, because of how many people you can get in front of, how easily uh, I can reach a worldwide 
you know, I can, I can interact with people in Japan and have a presence in Japan and live in the United States because people see my stuff. But before it was very hard to do that, you know? So the, the Jordan brand was built slowly, you know, over the course of his entire career. And it really, I mean, it really took off kind of after his career, right? Like in a huge way uh, where you've seen like LeBron's brand, Curry's brand, those people you mentioned, it's been built in like, you know, five years or 10 years, like while they're playing, it's so much easier. You don't have to go and do a two month tour in China to get in front of people. Like you bring them in social media and then you already have a presence. So super, uh, it's, it's easier now to become famous. And then the opportunities for the same reason to build a brand and get that brand in front of a wide audience, a worldwide audience. Uh, it's never been easier. So from that standpoint, yeah, I think it's one of the best times from, the standpoint and the, the negatives to it is like you mess up and your brand can tank instantly because you say one thing and you get caught on camera, you do one thing out in public and someone has a camera there, it's everywhere in, in an instant. Uh, so damage control is, is super important and um, operating authentically. So what you build your brand around, it needs to be who you are, the person, so that you don't have to be on every single second of every single day trying to like live this fake presence, you know, just who you are and, you know, you don't get caught in those situations. So positives and negatives to this time for famous people, for sure. But totally. And I think authenticity has never been more important either because it's impossible to be somebody that you're not publicly. It's, it's just bound to end up in disaster. And also, I think long- it's, I think it's important right now. I think it's, it's never been more important because it's never been more rare. Um, it's so easy to be fake. You know, you can post something on Instagram, you can post something on Twitter and put on any persona that you want and you don't have to meet people, but you have this massive friend network, you know, virtual, um, and, and authenticity is, is fading quickly, in my opinion. I agree. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. But that's also why I believe like, you know, on, on like the influencer side, most influences are not authentic, you know, for whatever reason. Um, that's why I personally believe an influencer's career on average is shorter than the average NFL career. <laughs> yeah i yeah. <laughs> what is that two and a half years like three years yeah three years yeah yeah i can see it uh they're kind of flashed in the pans and they they make a big impact right away you see with musical stars and stuff like that but um yeah i, I like that perspective so question do you own any of your own baseball cards i do not do you know what people have paid for them in the past i do so what do you what do you think the most somebody's ever paid for a Trevor Bauer card is? Oh, the most. Um, it, I know I've seen some of them that aren't one of ones and aren't special like chromes and stuff like that going for like eight hundred, a thousand. So I got to imagine it's over. I don't know the exact price. I would yeah. guess over a thousand though. So if if your rookie card auto number to 500 went for 1500 on eBay, that means that the overall market of that individual card is worth, you know, if you had every single one, it'd be 600 K in cards right there. Pretty mm-hmm. insane when you think about it, but maybe something to invest in. It might be. Um, I think owning your own intellectual property in that way is extremely important. Um, I haven't dove into the into the card industry. I know it's a huge industry, obviously. It's just some, it's one I haven't explored yet. Um, but 
I appreciate you laying it out like that because you have my interest peaked now. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that stuff. Or I, I want to make a couple more points on this. One, we're gonna send you one of your own cards because you have to own one, and I'm not taking no as an answer. Two, uh, the best way that I can explain the card industry really quick is that the second a player is drafted, the second you were drafted, that was your IPO and your autograph was worth X dollars. And then depending on your performance over time, just like you, a stock. You've sold, you sold me already, yeah. So, so let me give you an example. <laughs> uh, this guy named Vegas Dave bought a Mike Trout one of one super fractor in 2014 for $400,000. He flipped it for 4 million this year. Yep. You know, people, I bought, I personally bought a Giannis Antetokounmpo Prism rookie card for $1 in 2013 when he was drafted and I sold it for over a thousand. Like these things, what a return! These things have, and that was a spike because the industry went crazy and Corona had everybody at home. So the beginning of this year, combined with the last dance, really sent everything going crazy, mm-hmm. um, and people started realizing how you know not just how volatile it is, but how exciting it is because you can buy tra- you could buy a Luka Doncic PSA ten. You know, it's the grading company. It's graded on a one to ten scale. Right, hard for seventy dollars. And beyond just the natural organic spike of, of how things happen, depending on his play, it would go up 10, 20, $30 per day. Isn't there a company, isn't there a company that's uh, someone from the, was it the Knicks that's launching a company that basically treats players like stocks? Um, not the Knicks, the Nets, I think. So Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. So Spencer, Spencer's a friend. He's, he's doing something interesting. It's different though. Um, but there are, so eBay is the main marketplace for sports cards. Then you have StockX, who has a sports card department, a company called StarStock. There are a bunch of different people doing a bunch of different things, but the game is in owning the cards yourself as physical items, investing in players that you believe in and investing in old cards and getting in as early as you can on players that you believe in. Putting it in, like, yeah, you, you sold me when you put it as like an IPO and in a stocks perspective, because I know that world. So I, I immediately understand. <laughs> That's it. And you can buy as many shares as you want, because each yeah. company share in its yeah. own individual intersection, if you're buying the right cards. There are a lot of... It's a way, it's a way of betting on yourself, you know? Like, if you're the guy your... on the card, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I cannot buy my own cards, but you can. <laughs> Um, that's a good point. I appreciate that. No, of course. Yeah, so I, I think I think that's pretty much everything. I I wanted to, you know, also say you're on every social platform. You're on Instagram, you're on Twitter, you're on YouTube. Trevor at Trevor Bauer on all of them. At Bauer Outage. At Bauer. Uh, so Instagram and Twitter is at Bauer Outage. YouTube is just my name, Trevor Bauer. Well, I'm looking forward to everything you're about to do. I know we're going we're gonna to keep in touch along the way because I want to be of help however I can. Um, I, I appreciate you a ton for doing this and uh, going to get you into sports cards. And, uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, had a blast. And we'll, we'll have to, like, as you said, keep in contact because I think you have a um, – a ton of information that uh, <laughs> that I'd like I'd like to learn more about. Hell yeah, man! I'm here anytime. Always here. All right, everybody, follow Trevor. We'll see you next time. Peace. Awesome.